the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Sam Maupin engineering. Glad to have you with us. Later in the program today, we'll hear from James Spencer, president of the D.L. Moody Center and author of Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Before we get there, however, we'll take a look at some of the day's top news stories. Well, as you may have already heard, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th U.S. Capitol riot voted unanimously today to subpoena former President Donald Trump to testify and provide documents related to the attack, stretching this investigation out even further and closer to the midterm elections. Sources told NBC News that the committee chose to hold a vote during its hearing on Thursday to put the move in The public record, though members acknowledge it's unlikely Trump will comply. If the former president does not comply with the subpoena, the committee will be left to decide if they'll vote to hold him in criminal contempt of Congress. If the panel votes to do so, the matter would then head to the full House for a vote. Now, keep in mind, the midterm elections may change the makeup of the uh, of the House. And if the Republicans are in the majority, chances are this will go nowhere. Well, the committee's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson, said at the start of the hearing that lawmakers could vote on further investigation acting uh, during the meeting. Thompson later called Trump the one person at the center of the story of January 6th, adding, so we want to hear from him, end quote. It is our obligation to seek Donald Trump's testimony. He added that the committee recognizes that the decision to subpoena a former president is a serious and extraordinary action. That's why we want to take this step in full view of the American people following the choreographed hearing held earlier today. There's precedent in American history to... uh, uh, Congress to compel the testimony of a president. There is also president for precedent for presidents to provide testimony and documentary evidence to congressional investigations. Thompson said the committee has worked for more than a year, conducting more than a thousand interviews and depositions and reviewing hundreds of thousands of pages of documents and explaining that hearing from Trump is the next step in the committee's investigation. Again, quite close to the uh, midterm elections, whether or not it proceeds will depend at least in part on the outcome of the election for the House. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden will stop in Oregon next week as part of a West Coast trip. It's going to be his second time this year visiting Oregon, a state where presidential visits tend to be relatively rare. The president will travel to California from Wednesday the 12th through Friday the 14th, and then right here to Oregon from the 14th to Saturday the 15th, according to a Friday morning news release from the White House. On Monday, the White House released further details about the agenda for his visit, though the timing and location of events wasn't released. On the 14th, the president travels to Orange County, California, to Portland, where he'll participate in a grassroots volunteer effort with the Oregon Democrats. On the 15th, which is Saturday, the president will attend a reception for Democratic gubernatorial candidate Tina Kotek here in Portland, and he'll give a speech about lowering costs for American families. 
Well, that should be interesting. The trip will come one week after First Lady Dr. Jill Biden makes her own visit to the Pacific Northwest, stopping at Bates Technical College in Tacoma on Friday afternoon, attending a finance event at Senator Patty Murray or with Senator Patty Murray in Seattle on Saturday. The president last visited Oregon in April as part of a nationwide tour to promote the one trillion dollar infrastructure bill that Congress passed. I should say the Democrats passed late last year. Oregon is estimated to receive about one point two billion dollars for transportation projects over the next five years. In a speech delivered at a hangar near Portland International Airport, the president highlighted several ongoing and planned upgrades to the airport as examples of the kind of infrastructure renewal that this new bill would bring. The president's visit next week comes just a week or rather a few weeks before the American people are set to vote in the November 8th midterm elections. The typically deep blue Oregon has emerged as a surprising, uh, surprisingly competitive state this year, due in part to its three-way race for governor, where recent polls have shown Republican Christine Drazen with a narrow lead over Democrat Tina Kotek. There are many um, uh, there may be no more vivid example of the bewilderment with which America's uh, rank and file journalists tend to process um, American politics than the complaint that voters seem more interested in our unfolding economic catastrophe than they do in following the machinations of the January 6th committee. Now, it seems to me it doesn't require much explanation. It seems rather obvious. But at CNN, Stephen Collinson notes that polls repeatedly show that voters see the economy as far more visceral issue in daily life than the threat to American democracy. Well, first of all, they may not characterize January 6th as a threat to democracy. That's a presumption. Uh, he's uh, he's right. Voters do see the economy this way and they are rational to do so, too, given that inflation is causing havoc in the United States in a way that Donald Trump, who is not on the ballot in 22, is not uh, on the uh, on the one hand. We have a committee that has transfixed Washington. On the other hand, we have a nation still struggling to shake off the deprivations of a once in a century pandemic and coping with raging inflation and growing fears of a recession, which of these uh, Collinson expects to dominate our political conversations nearly two years after January 6th. Well, that is a rhetorical question. And it's also a question that President Biden and his party would do well to ask themselves in earnest. For nearly two years now, uh, the president and his party uh, and the press have treated inflation as if it were a mere distraction to be managed with words instead of action so that political room could be created to do other things. But that's not how politics works. By one measure, Collinson writes, the cost of living index returned to its highest level since August of 82 last month. The signs of this are everywhere at the pump, in the rental listings, in the car market, in the price of milk. It would be too simplistic to say voters are more preoccupied with the cost of French fries than the price of democratic freedoms, Collinson adds, and yet it wouldn't be far from the mark. Well, this should be obvious. In essence, Collinson is lamenting that Americans are too worried about the cost of food, in particular about the cost of potatoes, the most historically fraught menu item in the Western world. Again, even if we... If we were to take his unrelated assumptions about democratic freedoms at face value, what did he expect? And that's where we stand today in America, at least as understood by the press. 
Well, September inflation is higher than expected. We'll tell you more about that when we return right after the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Coming up later in the program, James Spencer, president of the D.L. Moody Center and author of Useful to God. Well, the September Consumer Price Index report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is out today, and it shows inflation at 8.2% year-over-year and 0.4% month-over-month. That's a year-over-year decline since August 8.3%, but a month-over-month increase from August 0.1%. Well, the consensus projections were 8.1% year-over-year, 0.2% month-over-month. Well, the index for all items, less food and energy, or core inflation for short, show a 0.6% month-over-month increase, which uh, was the same as August of this year. The food index continues to soar um, month-over-month, which is at the same as it was in August. Gasoline prices weigh significantly in the uh, Consumer Price Index. The September report registered a 4.9% decline in gasoline prices. I'm not sure where, certainly not here. That's pulling overall inflation down for September, and it's likely, it likely rather, won't um, be there for October. October. According to the Energy Information Administration, gasoline prices are up by 20% on average since the last week of September, with uh, OPEC's decision to reduce petroleum production and the war in Ukraine still going on. Energy market pressures will remain, and gasoline prices are unlikely to decline anytime soon. Meanwhile, key Democrats urge action against Saudi Arabia for oil production cuts. President Biden's administration urged the Saudis to delay cutting oil production by one month, putting behind the midterm elections, the country um, is now saying. So this was a political decision asking them to support his um, political aspirations. The Saudi government, which leads the OPEC oil conglomerate, rejected appeals from the U.S. last week and moved forward with cutting oil production, potentially causing gas prices to spike all across the country before Election Day. The government of the kingdom clarified through its uh, continuous consultation with the U.S. administration that all economic analysis indicates that postponing the OPEC plus decision by a month, according to what has been suggested, would have had negative economic consequences, read Thursday's statement from the Saudis, according to The Guardian. The administration, the Biden administration, responded to the decision with outrage, declaring Wednesday that the U.S. would reassess its relationship with Saudis, turning its attention now to Venezuela. Well, Oregon's ongoing stretch of warm and dry weather in October, it smashed a number of records with more likely on the way before the month is over. Used to rely on September, we'd have pretty nice weather. October, things would change. On Sunday, the Portland International Airport reported its seventh day of 80 degree or higher temperatures so far this month. That breaks the previous record of six total 80 degree days. In other words, the record um, the record book has never be, uh, before seen this many warm days past the month of September. Well, in addition to breaking that record, Oregon has set a few daily a record temperature so far. October 8th climbed to 87 degrees and on the 9th, 85. Portland is likely to um, tack on several more records with high temperatures forecasted near 80 degrees today, Thursday and over the weekend. Adding to the um, unusualness of the uh, the weather is that this October follows what were the warmest August and September on record. If temperatures don't cool off soon, October will be in the running for the third all-time record warm month in a row, which is extremely unusual. It has um, 
uh, has to start raining at some point. Portland has uh, seen consistent rainfall since mid-June, more than 100 days ago. I should say has not seen consistent rainfall, but it's coming, I think. Nicholas Cruz, the gunman responsible for the deaths of 14 students and three staff members at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, has been sentenced to life in prison by a Florida jury. The jury opted against the death penalty because Cruz suffered developmental delays as a result of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. The shooting occurred on Valentine's Day in 2018, you'll recall. Cruz was armed with a semi-automatic rifle and at least 300 rounds of ammunition. Charging into one of the school campus buildings, he discharged over 100 rounds as he stalked hallways and classrooms, retracing his steps to ensure no one was left alive. Some of the grieving families were deeply unhappy with the ruling. This jury failed our families today, said one, the father of one of the victims. 17 families did not receive justice, end quote. Another uh, whose 15-year-old son was slain in the rampage texted, I am stunned upon hearing the jury decision to not seek the death penalty. In August of 22, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended four members of Broward County School Board following a grand jury investigation that concluded the district exhibit clear evidence of incompetence, neglect of duty, malfeasance, and uh, misfeasance surrounding school safety and maintenance. Cruz was 19 at the time of the shooting, had uh, asked for a life sentence without the possibility of parole in order to dedicate his life to helping others, end quote. Cruz pled guilty to 17 counts of murder as well as an additional 17 counts of attempted murder. It is the country's deadliest high school shooting to date. President Biden's fabrications are constantly dismissed and downplayed by the media. The latest statement was that he uh, helped generate millions of jobs at some point in his past. But there is quite a lineup. I'll resist going through them. But lying with impunity, the media is being charged with not doing its job. Officers down, two police officers were fatally shot and another seriously injured in Connecticut. In a wallop to the wallet, inflation is busting bank accounts across America and cash-strapped voters are venting their frustrations. The January 6th committee hearing to recreate President Trump's state of mind during the uh, riot on January 6th without testimony by the former president or top allies was held today. But they have now subpoenaed the president to come before the committee just in time for the midterms. Polarizing priorities, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky's a sole um, parents meeting on school reopening uh, guidance featured left wing activists and not actual parents, apparently calling him to resign. Republicans slam Mayorkas's uh, Mayorkas rather after emails show he was alerted to no Haitian migrants being whipped, but went out in a press conference and stated that those who did it, uh, that very thing would be punished. Wasting no time, Tulsi Gabbard plans to campaign for GOP Senate candidate Don Baldock after suddenly leaving the Democratic Party. In a Twitter diagnosis, political writers accuse Elon Musk of having a histrionic personality disorder without medical evidence. Reversing course, the Washington Post's Jennifer Rubin denounced Senator Ben Sass, the Republican from Nebraska, after years of previously praising him for planning to step down and accept a position as president of the University of Florida. Rubin denounced Sass on Wednesday in an op-ed calling him an affirmative action hire if there ever was one, by Governor DeSantis to install in his stead. In a call to arms, a PBS host is calling on Americans to get into the streets like oppressed Iranians 
to protest the Supreme Court. On the price of pain, the September inflation report will likely show core prices surging to a fresh 40-year high. In a bait-and-switch, Victor Davis Hansen says President Biden is using the midterm mass distraction to hide counterculture revolution. And in a party pooper, school kids are being denied a Halloween parade over inclusivity concerns. And an Iran warning calls are growing to kick the country out of the U.N. body dedicated to equality and empowerment of women. This is actually a debate. The producer price index rose 0.4 percent and could put upward pressure in inflation. And Republicans attorneys general to Merrick Garland stand down on prosecuting critics of transgender surgeries for minors. Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Scrimetti and a group of 12 other state attorneys general delivered a letter to Merrick Garland on Wednesday demanding that the Department of Justice refrain from prosecuting individuals who question the wisdom of providing gender-affirming care to minors. Gender-affirming care. Uh, Scrimetti's letter comes as a reply to another letter addressed to Garland earlier this month from the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, and Children's Hospital Association. The three organizations requested the U.S. Attorney General investigate the organizations, individuals, and entities coordinating, provoking, and carrying out bomb threats and threats of personal violence against children's hospitals and physicians across the U.S. Fox News uh, uh, says that in the letter, the attorneys general wrote of their deep concern with the recent letter Garland received from the medical associations, which they said asked him to investigate and prosecute people who question the medical establishment's current treatment of children struggling with gender dysphoria. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break. We'll continue to work our way through the news. And in the second hour, a conversation with James Spencer, president of the D.L. Moody Center on Useful to God, his book, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that Mark Schultz is going to be in a benefit concert for Stand Up Girl. You can see the award-winning Christian music artist Mark Schultz Friday, October 21st, 7 o'clock p.m. at Manor House Church in Northeast Portland. All the important details at kpdq.com. Tickets are $25 each or $45 per couple to benefit Stand Up Girl. kpdq.com for important details. Department of Health and Human Services, or the Department of Homeland Security, there aren't enough letters there, DHS, Secretary Mayorkas, knew the Border Patrol whipping allegation was false before pushing the opposite narrative. According to the newly released emails, the department uh, secretary was aware of the popular narrative that Border Patrol agents whipped a group of Haitian migrants was false hours before he declared the incident horrific during a White House press conference. One of his staffers sent him an email less than three hours before the press conference relayed, relaying the account of the photographer who took the viral photo and said the salacious account of what happened was false. Rather than using the information he was provided to correct the narrative, he, perp- her, he perpetrated the uh, uh, media's misleading account of the incident by suggesting that something requiring investigation had occurred. And there were actually penalties uh, handed out. Bill Mulligan points out that emails released to the secretary was alerting the DHS top public affairs official that the narrative behind the horseback BP photo wasn't true. But at the press conference, 2.5 hours later, he didn't refute that narrative, instead calling the images horrifying. 
Well, more staffers quit prosecutor Kimberly Fox's office, totaling more than 235 since July of 2021. Frustrations continue to mount against the Cook County State's attorney, Kimberly Fox, as growing numbers of attorneys in her office resign. Four Cook County assistant state's attorneys recently resigned from her uh, felony review unit, three of whom quit on the same day, all within the past two weeks. A source familiar with the matter says the four felony ASAs who normally worked out of the Cook County Criminal Court uh, building in 26th Street and California Avenue were being asked to volunteer their time covering traffic court in a Bridgeview, Illinois courthouse due to staffing issues at the Bridgeview location. The resignations come about three months after the 25-year veteran Illinois prosecutor took aim at Fox's policies in a public resignation letter published in July. More than 235 people have resigned from her office since July of 21. Though homicides are down in Chicago by 17 percent this year compared to last year, they remain higher than previous years, according to the outlet. Other violent crimes include burglary, robbery, theft and motor vehicle theft. They're reportedly up by 37 percent compared to last year. Tulsi Gabbard has endorsed the GOP Senate candidate and is doubling down on her criticism of the vice president. The former Democratic presidential candidate is set to campaign for a Republican Senate hopeful after announcing her departure from the Democrat Party on uh, Tuesday. Gabbard's support of New Hampshire GOP Senate candidate Don Bolduc uh, comes just one day after she said she is no longer a Democrat. Uh, Boldeck is a fellow uh, change agent, an independent-minded outsider willing to speak truth to power, she says. I'm honored to have her support and looking forward to brainstorming New Hampshire with her, he said. Gabbard, who notoriously slammed the vice president during a Democratic presidential debate in 2019, doubled down on her criticism, calling out Harris's double standard on key issues, including drug prosecution. Kamala Harris is a perfect example of everything that's wrong with Washington and the Democrat Party of today, she said. Gabbard declined to say whether she will call herself an independent or a Republican going forward and instead called herself an independent minded person. U.S. chip equipment suppliers are pulling out of China due to new Commerce Department regulations. American suppliers are beginning to withdraw staff from one of China's leading chip companies in the wake of new U.S. regulations. It's a blow to Communist Party efforts to build a vibrant domestic technology industry. Applied Materials Inc., KLA Corporation and Lam Research Corp. Uh, have started or are preparing to um, to pull employees from the Yangtze Memory Technologies Company, the country's most advanced maker of memory chips. The withdrawals are coming this week, and people said, following new regulations from the Biden administration last week, that banned Chinese companies from buying advanced chip-making equipment or employing American citizens without a license. The Wall Street Journal weighs in, while the moves... Uh, might be uh, temporary. They are immediate signs of business disruptions facing China's chip makers and U.S. technology suppliers as Washington escalates its efforts to stifle China's uh, emerging semiconductor industry. Well, after a request for a delay has been denied, President Trump will be deposed in his defamation case. Not the best week for the former president, former uh, President Trump, will have to answer questions under oath next week in a defamation lawsuit lodged by a writer who says he assaulted her in the mid-1990s, a judge ruled on Wednesday. U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan rejected a request by Trump lawyers that the planned testimony be delayed. The deposition is now scheduled for October 19th. 
The decision came in a lawsuit brought by E. Jean Carroll, a longtime advice columnist for Elle magazine, who says Trump assaulted her in an upscale Manhattan department store dressing room. Trump has denied it. Carroll is scheduled to be deposed on Friday. Carroll's lawsuit claims that um, civilian Trump damaged her reputation in 2019 when he denied assaulting her. Trump's legal team has been trying to squash the suit by arguing that the Republican was just doing his job as president when he denied the allegations. Hmm. That'll be next week. Russia is proposing to send energy to Germany, but Germany rejected the offer. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Wednesday uh, said that Moscow is ready to resume gas supplies to Europe via a link of the German-bound Nord Stream 2 pipeline under the Baltic Sea, an offer quickly rejected by Berlin. German officials have said Russia halted supplies through the Nord Stream 1 as a political gambit and questioned why supplies through Nord Stream 2 would be any more reliable. Natural gas powers factories, heats homes, and generates electricity. And despite Russia's reductions, Europe has been able to bring its gas shortage to 90% full for winter by securing other supplies. The BBC reports... Uh, But Germany quickly rejected Mr. Putin's offer to send gas via Nord Stream 2. At the same time, a government spokesman in Berlin said Nord Stream 1, which is not under sanctions, was an option. But gas was not flowing because Russia did not deliver. Russia has been accused of using gas supplies as a weapon against the West since the invasion of Ukraine, a charge reportedly denied by the Kremlin. The Treasury Department is planning to investigate DeSantis, the governor, for misuse of funds for flying immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. There's no concern for the reason for those transports, however. Politico reports the Treasury Department is examining the Florida governor's governor's migrant transports and whether the Republican governor improperly used money connected with COVID-19 aid to facilitate the flights. The agency's inspector general's office confirmed to several members of the Massachusetts Democratic congressional delegation that it planned to get this work underway as soon as possible to probe Florida's spending as part of an ongoing audit into how states have used the billions it sent uh, as part of the American Rescue Plan, according to a letter provided by Democrats, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey's office. The Treasury Department Inspector General confirmed in a letter to lawmakers that the agency is planning the audit. Um, Katie Pavlich uh, weighs in, saying that while the Treasury Inspector General goes after DeSantis, the office is ignoring flights organized by the federal government under the policies of President Joe Biden and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas to fly illegal immigrants to cities across the country in the middle of the night. In another case of a double standard, there have been an estimated 90,000 Russian casualties since the invasion of Ukraine began. Over 90,000 Russian soldiers have died, cannot be accounted for, or have suffered such serious injuries that they are unable to return to service, independent Russian media project iStories reported on Wednesday. Citing sources close to the Kremlin, the figure falls roughly in line with estimates made by the Pentagon and other Western governments in late August, which stated that around 70 to 80,000 Russian soldiers had been killed or had been seriously injured since the invasion of Ukraine began. The total estimated loss of the Russian army uh, for today. An irrevocable loss, as detailed by the report, is a soldier who died, went missing, died of wounds or injured that prevented him from returning to military service. If I-Stories is correct, Russia's losses are approximately half of the estimated 190,000 men sent into Ukraine on strongman Vladimir Putin's orders on February 23rd. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'd like to extend an invitation to pastors and ministry leaders and their spouses for their faithful service. We here at KPDQ want to invite you to the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. It's coming up on Thursday, November 3rd at 8 a.m. at the Embassy Suites at the Portland Airport. It's free of charge, but you do need to make reservations. Fabulous breakfast, fellowship, worship. I'm going to have an opportunity to share some music and uplifting message from Pastor Alan Jackson. It's going to be a wonderful morning and our Um, our way of saying thank you. We recognize that you are the ones who are called to lead the church and we want to support you and encourage you in every way we can. Again, that's coming up on Thursday, November 3rd at the Embassy Suites Hotel to make your reservation, which is required, free of charge, but required, kpdq.com. Well, in a breathtaking admission, the COVID vaccination was never tested against transmission. Well, Pfizer's president of international development markets, Janine Small, admitted to European Union Parliament lawmakers this week that the pharmaceutical company never tested its novel mRNA COVID vaccine for effectiveness against transmission of the virus. What press, uh, when pressed as to why, Small argued that there was no time because the world was in a global health crisis and desperate for a vaccine. She also noted that a study produced by the Imperial College estimated that the vaccine saved 20 million people. We had to really move at a speed of science uh, to really understand what was taking place in the market. And from that point of view, we had to do everything at risk. The EU member Rob Roos who asked the question regarding transmission testing, is a critic of the push for global COVID vaccine mandates. He responded to Small's admission, saying millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth that you do it for others. Now this turned out to be a cheap lie. This should be exposed, Roos called called it shocking, even criminal, after he noted that vaccine mandates have led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. Romanian EU lawmaker Christian Terres also weighed in, stating Pfizer hasn't tested the vaccine to see if it stopped the spread of the virus. So we're asking again, what are they hiding? How many people have been needlessly hurt by Pfizer's failure to hold to the standards of good scientific practice? Even today, there are lawsuits Uh, And uh, going back and forth as to whether or not individuals can return to their places of employment. On the Alex Jones verdict on Wednesday, a six member jury in the liability suit against the media personality Alex Jones, a suit raised by family members of eight of the victims of the Sandy Hook atrocity and an FBI agent who responded to the scene, ruled that he and his company Infowars must pay a stunning nine hundred and sixty five million dollars to the plaintiffs. In the immediate aftermath of the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School attack in which 20 first graders and six staff were shot to death, Jones falsely claimed the attack was staged in an effort to build an anti-Second Amendment sentiment. Jones peddled his crass conspiracy for several years, though he now admits that the massacre was real and not a hoax. Well, a judge, judge rather, had previously found Jones guilty in a defamation case. The nearly billion-dollar verdict is clearly beyond the scope of the offense, and it dwarfs the $550 million the lawyer for the plaintiff is seeking. One observer pointed out that it's clear that this verdict has much more to do with who Alex Jones is rather than the false claims he made regarding Sandy Hook and its aim at destroying him and his company, which is already in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The judgment is as absurd as his slanderous assault on reality. However, 
Is it any worse than the fake news, false reporting and conspiracy theories that have been perpetrated by the likes of CNN and MSNBC? Is Alex Jones any worse than Don Lemon or Joy Reid? MSNBC pundit Jen Psaki welcomed the verdict, stating the damage Alex Jones had done to the lives of these families is horrific. And it is nearly a billion dollars doesn't solve their pain, but also true that the end of the Infowars would be a public service. End quote. Finally, how does this verdict not run afoul of the Eighth Amendment? It explicitly states excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. You can never take back the pain and damage Alex Jones perpetrated, but the law is clear. Few Americans actually relocate for political reasons, despite their threats to do so. Many may strongly express their sentiment for moving to another city or state or country for that matter, over political disagreements, but all too often a myriad of other reasons prevent people from following through. Every presidential election cycle, there are a few celebrities, most often those with one side bent, who assert that they will move out of the country if the opposing party wins, though invariably they never actually do. A survey conducted earlier this year by YouGov found that while 38 percent of Americans say they would leave the U.S. for For good, at some point, due to politics, few ever do. Following Donald Trump's 2016 victory, just 655 more Americans immigrated to Canada than the prior year, and it's not clear what their motive was. The total number annually averages about 10,000, or rather less than 10,000, and within the U.S., the vast majority of Americans stay relatively close to where they grew up. Recent Center for Economic Studies research found that 80% of young Americans live within 100 miles of where they grew up. What tends to be the biggest driver for Americans moving is financial incentive, not political dissatisfaction. Of course, politics can increasingly impact the financial considerations of Americans. Well, just in time for the midterms, asylum-seeking Venezuelan migrants who cross the border illegally will be returned to Mexico. But who will pick up the uh, pick the crops, as Speaker Pelosi suggested they were here for? Well, the speaker admits the Biden administration must do a better job of securing the southern border during her um, his New York City visit. According to the Biden administration, home heating costs will surge this winter. No big news there. The FCC plans to ban the sale of Chinese telecom equipment due to national security concerns. Federal officials uh, trade stock in companies, their agencies oversee, which is not legal. Joe Biden says his son, Bo, lost his life in Iraq during his Colorado speech. Critics warn that the president's outright fabrications are constantly dismissed, downplayed and softened by the media. Los Angeles Councilwoman Nuri Martinez has resigned following her leaked racist remarks and ACT test scores dropped to the lowest level in 30 years in the pandemic slide. A study confirms pandemic era babies have social communication deficits and Google owned YouTube has been flexing its censorship muscles against conservative voices for a while. But the big tech company's tactics just got even worse. Now tacked on to the posts of pro-lifers, YouTube is um, uh, YouTube is directing users to pro-abortion information and a firebombed Wisconsin pro-life center hasn't heard from the FBI since May. This is October, by the way. Well, on this day in history, 1775, the United States Navy has its origins as the Continental Congress orders the construction of a naval fleet. 
1792, the cornerstone of the executive mansion, later known as the White House, is laid by President George Washington during a ceremony in the District of Columbia. 1845, Texas voters ratify a state constitution. 1943, Italy declares war on Germany, its one-time Axis partner. 1999, the Senate rejects the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, with 48 senators voting in favor and 51 against, far short of the 67 needed for ratification. 2003, the U.N. Security Council approves a resolution expanding the NATO-led peacekeeping force in Afghanistan. 2010, rescuers in Chile, using a missile-like escape capsule, pull 33 men one by one to fresh air and freedom 69 days after they were trapped in a collapsed mine a half mile underground. 2018, that's the stuff of nightmares, I would say. 2018, a Turkish newspaper reports that Turkish officials have an audio recording of the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And finally, also in 2018, President Trump welcomes American Pastor Andrew Brunson to the Oval Office, celebrating his release from nearly two years of confinement in Turkey. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll talk with James Spencer, president of the D.L. Moody Center. He's also the author of Useful to God. We'll also talk a bit about YouTube uh, slapping uh, pro-abortion content onto pro-life videos and the Guttmacher Institute. Um, they're accounting for how abortion is being practiced in some states across the globe, across the country, I should say. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll hear from James Spencer, president of D.L. Moody Center and author of Useful to God. That's coming up for the next couple of segments. We'll also take a look at YouTube and how they're adding pro-abortion content to pro-life videos and the Guttmacher Institute. The research arm, or at least it used to be, of Planned Parenthood, their analysis of abortion across the fruited plain since the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Well, the Fraternal Order of Police is hammering the culture of lawlessness after 12 officers have been shot since Monday. Well, they released a scathing criticism of modern law enforcement protocol, calling the nation lawless. The order made the statement in reaction to a sharp spike in violence against police this week, which the group blamed on failed policies and anti-police rhetoric from politicians and media personalities. Well, since Monday, at least 12 police officers have been shot. The Fraternal Order of Police said on Thursday, the spewing of anti-police rhetoric by some political and media figures, as well as the failed policies of rogue prosecutors and judges, are placing our officers in great danger. The organization continued to say this culture is lawless and it must stop. Well, two police officers were killed and another was seriously wounded in an officer-involved shooting in Bristol, Connecticut, late Wednesday night. Connecticut State Police announced all three officers were members of the Bristol Police Department. Uh, The police chief identified the fallen soldiers as Sergeant Dustin DeMont, 35, Deputy Alex Hamsey, 34, in a Thursday morning press conference. A suspect was killed in a shooting that left three SWAT officers wounded in Philadelphia early Wednesday after officers served a homicide arrest warrant to a suspect who then barricaded himself inside a residence, according to local media. Well, that shooting happened... uh, In North uh, Philadelphia's popular section around 6 a.m., two of the officers were shot in the leg and the third was hit in the chest, according to the station. But again, suggesting this must stop. 
The American Civil Liberties Union in Philadelphia is accusing one of the state's largest school districts of discriminating against gay and transgender students, in part because of a proposed policy that would bar teachers from displaying gay pride flags in classrooms and a directive requiring staff members to identify students by their legal name and sex unless parents approve a change. On the 6th of October, the ACLU filed a federal discrimination complaint with the Civil Rights Division of both the Department of Justice and Department of Education, accusing rather the Central Bucks School District of engaging in illegal discrimination. The district has chronically uh, failed to take responsible and necessary measures to address persistent and severe bullying and harassment of students generally and gender nonconforming students in particular. Well, certainly I think we'd all agree that they should not be bullied or harassed. But the larger question is requiring staff to inform parents. The left-wing organization also accused the district leaders and Republican-led school board of blatantly discriminatory practices and policies targeting these students by requiring parents be informed. The complaint was filed on behalf of seven people whose names and specific allegations comprising 28 pages of the 78-page complaint were redacted for uh, from the copy released publicly. Well, school board president... Uh, Dana Hunter addressed the complaint at the beginning of an emotional and sometimes contentious board meeting on Tuesday night. She said the district is committed to every student and is resolute and united in its zero tolerance for discrimination, bullying or harassment of any kind. The district's policies, she said, are designed to protect students. Should a staff member fail to follow policies, they put students well-being at risk. Well, the debate at the uh, Central Bucks School is just the latest touchstone in what has turned into a nationwide debate over how teachers and schools should handle students and whether or not parents should be part of that equation. Well, the Greater Idaho Movement. Have you heard about it? Well, there's an effort to secede from the state of Oregon. And the Greater Idaho Movement proposes redrawing Oregon's borders so that about two-thirds of the Beaver State's land mass becomes part of a neighboring Idaho. Well, the movement has also has already gained support from nine counties in eastern Oregon, and two more will vote on whether they want lawmakers to work on the logistics of moving the border. Well, it makes more sense for eastern Oregonians to get state-level governance coming from Idaho, where they share their values, share their culture, share their politics, than it does to be governed from western Oregon. That's a quote from Greater Idaho spokesman Matt McCaw. Looking at any election map and the uh, the problem Greater Idaho seeks to remedy is clear. By land size, Oregon appears conservative. Some counties uh, voted nearly 80 percent for Donald Trump in the 2020 election. But the population centers of Portland, Eugene and Bend have made it one of the most liberal states in the country. It's always been a problem because the West Side has many more voters, McCaw says. They have the numbers to dictate what happens statewide. An urban-rural divide is nothing new, but McCaw says that eastern Oregon is unique because it's border, it borders a state that is almost the, of the same value. Idaho votes 63.9% Trump and just 33.1% President Biden in the last presidential election. The gem state is already a favorite moving destination among Oregonians who prefer a conservative politic or lower cost of living. McCaw said the group envisions 15 whole counties and two partial counties joining Idaho. Nine Oregon counties have already voted in favor of exploring the idea further, and two more will cast their vote in November. If approved, the Morrow County measure will require commissioners to meet three times per year to discuss how best to promote their county's interests and 
any um, negotiations regarding the relocation of the Oregon-Idaho state border. Wheeler County's measure would direct local officials to ask the state to proceed with plans to move that border. Will drag queens in the pulpit become mainstream in the United Methodist Church? I'm not just being sensational. A pastor invited a drag queen to church for a children's sermon. Is it a sign that the denomination is simply dying? That's the question Ian Ghiotti said, who happens to belong to the denomination. Well, that's what one Methodist critic is warning after the UMC pastor in Florida invited a man dressed in women's clothing to preach a sermon with children seated next to him during a recent church service. Um, Allendale UMC senior pasty, pastor rather Andy Oliver said he invited Isaac Simmons, who performs in drag as Miss Penny Cost, to deliver the sermon on the 2nd of October because he wants all people to see people like themselves called by God to preach the gospel. Well, in a Facebook post, Oliver wrote that Simmons, uh, who is seen in a video clip of the service wearing a wig and a sequin dress, was an angel in heels appearing to shepherds in the field on the night shift, telling them the good news had arrived on their doorstep, end quote. Well, Oliver compared the decision to have a drag queen teach during Sunday service to other churches putting a flag on the altar. And called Simmons an incredible preacher grounded in Allensdale uh, in Wesleyan and liberation theology, end quote. Well, Mark Tooley, the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, believes drag queens like Simmons are becoming the new public face of United Methodism. His children's sermon and role in the uh, Eucharist at a Florida church showcase how drag ministry will now become mainstream in the denomination. Tooley said, speaking to Christian Post in an emailed statement, To my knowledge, no United Methodist official, including Simon's bishop, has publicly expressed concern about this United Methodist drag queen. For Thule, Simons and others like him are among the reasons the United Methodism, which, as Thule put it, has never enjoyed a single year of growth in its 53 years, is imploding. We'll continue to follow that story to see if the denomination speaks. Well, coming up next, we're going to hear from James Spencer. He's the president of the D.L. Moody Center. He's also the author of Useful to God. Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. I think you'll enjoy that conversation. And we'll take a look at YouTube and its new context rule that applies pro-abortion content to pro-life videos. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Bible warns believers very clearly about the dangers of wealth. Even secular sources acknowledge the pitfalls of greed. The University of California, Berkeley, released a report, and it states, psychologists who studied the impact of wealth and inequality on human behavior have found that money can powerfully influence our thoughts and actions in ways that we're often unaware of, no matter our economic circumstance. Research is uncovering how wealth impacts our sense of morality, our relationships with others, and our mental health. Well, that's one of the subjects that's being covered in Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections Inspired by D.L. Moody. The D.L. Moody Center, is uh, their latest devotional, addresses issues like wealth and greed from a unique biblical perspective. It's week five in an eight-week study, free from the love of money. Well, Dr. James Spencer uses Job 31, verses 24 and 28, as a way to discuss the purposes of money in a Christian life, They're to uh, use in service of God rather than self-serving. 
Well, that subject and many others are covered in this great devotional. Well, here to talk with us about that is James Spencer. He is a theologian and Christian leader who helps individuals and organizations ask and answer the necessary questions so that they can move forward from where they are to where God wants us, wants them to be. He earned his Ph.D. in theological studies from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, serves as an administrator and leader in Christian higher education. He continues to consult with Christian colleges and seminaries, as well as nonprofit organizations to help them build stronger organizational capacity. He currently serves as president of D.L. Moody Center, an independent nonprofit organization inspired by the life and ministry of Dwight Moody and dedicated to proclaiming the gospel and challenging God's uh, call to follow Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to talking about this uh, devotional that's available to our listeners. Dr. Spencer. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a real joy to have you. I want to begin sort of at the beginning and not assume that all of our listeners are familiar with the D.L. Moody Center, and for that matter, D.L. Moody. So let's start at the beginning, and maybe you can give us a bit of background. Sure. Dwight Moody was a 19th century evangelist. He traveled uh, the United States and really uh, large portions of the world proclaiming the gospel. Um, He also started three schools, two in Northfield, Massachusetts, a small town in Western Mass. Uh, Northfield Seminary for Girls, and Mount Hermon School for Boys. And those were more like boarding schools for teenage boys and girls who couldn't afford an education otherwise. And then he started the Chicago Bible Institute, which is now the Moody Bible Institute. Mm -hmm. Um, He also held summer conferences uh, on the property that D.L. Moody Center owns and operates in Northfield, Mass. And these summer conferences were designed to just invite Christians of all different sorts of denominations and perspectives to come together for worship, for prayer, for Bible study, and to discern the Holy Spirit. And D.L. Moody really believed that when he brought Christians together to do those four things, that God would do great things through them. And so the D.L. Moody Center is an organization that is dedicated to echoing that message, to um, continuing that work, and to really convening, challenging, and, uh, and encouraging Christians to proclaim the gospel uh, through word and deed. I appreciate that's what, uh, that's what we do. I appreciate that the in the description of the DL Moody Center, it's a destination for spiritual renewal, and you work in right. concert with local churches, and um, that's that's such uh, a, a needed partnership for local churches, many of which struggle with resource. So this is a tremendous opportunity for very the much. church. Yeah, very much, and we we really enjoy hosting uh, you know smaller churches, smaller men's retreats, smaller women's retreats. Um, it's been great to have the facilities to just um, provide low-cost accommodations and a nice, quiet place for those groups to get together and really um, pray, worship, study, and uh, think about where the Holy Spirit is leading them together. Mm. And it's wonderful to be able to get away for a moment to really reflect on those things. <laughs> That's we're, right. We're talking today about a resource that you've recently produced, Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections Inspired by D.L. Moody. And it's part of the Shine Bright 365 um, effort. Can you describe the uh, devotional and the Shine Bright movement, if you will? Sure. So the devotional is really based on a book that we recently published called Useful to God. And Useful to God is, uh, is was really a, a modernization of a book written by a gentleman named R.A. Torrey, who was a contemporary of D.L. Moody. And he wrote a book called Why God Used D.L. Moody and listed seven characteristics um, that he felt made D.L. Moody useful to God. 
And so the book contains seven of those characteristics in addition and one uh, additional characteristic that I've added. Um, and we've sort of updated that text and, and made it more accessible for a modern audience. And the goal is really to alert Christians to the fact that, you know, we focus on who we are in Christ. God is going to be able to do many more things through us than if we just focus on what it is that we're doing on a daily basis. And so we need to cultivate these characteristics in us in the same way that D.L. Moody cultivated these characteristics in himself. The, the Shine Bright 365 campaign is really in line with that. What we're doing there is we're trying to get Christians to understand that we're to be doers of God's Word. And we're not just supposed to learn. Discipleship is not just about learning or education. It's about learning to obey, learning to observe all Christ commanded. And so the Shine Bright 365 campaign provides exercises and disciplines for Christians to walk into on a daily basis that will lead them toward a more faithful witness to Jesus Christ. How are we doing in general um, as the body of Christ and being useful to God? And, And perhaps we should take a moment to describe what does it mean to be useful to God? Yeah, I think when D.L. Moody used the term, what he was really trying to convey was each individual Christian surrendering their own ambitions to the Lord and following after him in all things that they did. Uh, One of the things that's written in the Northfield Seminary for Girls handbook that I found uh, compelling and helpful was they encourage the students to read their Bibles. And uh, the way they phrase it is like this. They say, we want students to experimentally test the meaning and value of the scriptures by doing God's word. And and I think that that is really where um, the modern-day church needs to sort of get back to doing that. We need to get back to just doing the basics of the faith, focusing in on who we're supposed to be in Christ, doing these small, what what I would consider sort of the foolish activities in the eyes of the world, prayer, worship, uh, community together, serving, um, caring for the poor, caring for those who are on the fringes of society. These are things that um, are odd and strange and mark us out as, as Christ followers in unique and important ways. And so the extent to which the church is doing that, I think, varies. I think some of it is um, many times we just don't hear the really good stories that are, are sort of out there. And so my sense is that the the church overall is doing more of this than we often see, because we tend to get a little bit too involved in the scandals and the bad stuff. Um, But the reality is that uh, I I would say New England is a fantastic microcosm of this. You know, New England has the impression that the church is sort of spiritually dead. And yet, as we work in New England, what we continue to uncover is um, the faithful Christian groups, small groups of Christian people who are just embattled. They're continuing the good fight. They're doing things on a small scale, Uh, 10-year prayer movements, small discipleship movements. And these these Christians are pushing forward in the right ways. They're there. They're just not as prominent as some of the other things that we often see going on. And so I I have a tendency to believe that the church is in better shape than maybe Mm -hmm. we think it is. And, uh, and, and that part of what we need to do is start focusing on the positive things that we're doing as believers and as a body of believers so that we can really motivate ourselves and, and continue the good work that, that seems to be going on already.
Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I'm here in Portland, Oregon, and we have a reputation here as well. But I do know that the church is at work and moving and people are faithfully praying and serving. So you're absolutely right. We may have an impression of what uh, the church is or isn't doing, but we know the scripture says the gates of hell is not going to prevail against the church. That's right. And when we decide as individuals and corporately as the community of faith, when we decide that we're going to faithfully honor God, he's going to move in ways that aren't going to make the headlines here in the Oregonian. Um, but God is at work. He's he's faithful to every generation and will use those who faithfully serve him. Now, I mentioned one subject, free from the love of money, and I want to kind of plant uh, plant ourselves there um, when we come back from the break. But this really covers, as you mentioned, a number of subjects, and they're divided into, I believe it's eight weeks, surrendered, yeah. prayerful, studious, humble, free from the love of money, consumed with passion for the lost, rather than just critiquing the lost, imbued with power from on high and undistracted. This is a great study intended for what period of time? It's intended to be over eight weeks, Mm -hmm. um, but obviously people can take as much time as they need. We recognize that, you know, going through any one of those topics may take you a a month um, to really start to get into it and master it. And so um, it is designed for eight weeks, but uh, folks should take as much time as they need to really master those uh, disciplines. Again, we're talking with uh, Dr. James Spencer. He is president of the D.L. Moody Center and author of Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. And I should mention, he's the author of several uh, books. We're just talking about the one a devotional today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. James Spencer. He's president of the D.L. Moody Center. He's also the author of a new devotional, which, by the way, is free and available to you online, Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. And I'm so grateful for this resource. I wanted to spend some time talking about one area that you cover in this devotional to give our listeners perhaps some idea of the depth and breadth of what they might expect. And that's the chapter that has to do with the love of money. We are just emerging from a pandemic. We're in the midst of a season of inflation, economic downturn, high prices. And our attention is rightly focused on the challenge, but it's entirely possible for us as Americans to have our focus in uh, in such a way that it is contrary to what God intends for us. Talk a little bit about the subject of free, being free from the love of money and why this made the devotional. Yeah, I, I think part of why I made the devotional was, you know, D.L. Moody had a way about running ministry that he, Ari uh, Tori phrases it like this, um, millions of dollars came through D.L. Moody's hands, but none of it stuck to his fingers. And so he allowed money to flow through his hands into his ministry and really had no particular concern about how much wealth he was amassing. In fact, on his deathbed, he tells his uh, family, um, I've always been an ambitious man, ambitious not to leave you with many, much wealth or with, uh, or with a lot of assets, but with much work to do. And I, I think that there's something that we need to learn from that. I think that we often get a little bit too obsessed with our financial situation, and that is not to diminish the very real needs that people have. But the reality is that um, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And 
our lives are not governed by how much money we make, how much money we save, how much money we earn, or how much money we may earn. Um, they're governed by how well we can walk obediently with the Lord. And so I, I think there's a reason that Paul equates greed with idolatry. Um, and I, I think part of that is that, um, you know, we really can't serve God and manna all at the same time. We, we truly have to make a choice. And if we're going to choose God, then the anxieties about money, the fear about money, the fear about our daily needs have to sit, go become secondary because truly we are supposed to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness so that God will give all those other things to us. I think at this season, there's a lot of fear surrounding money. What, what's the future going to hold in terms of the economy? Um, you use Job 31 verses 24 through 28 as a way to discuss the purpose of money in a Christian's life. Can you talk a little bit about that and where we place concern about decisions others are making about uh, whether or not the money we do have is going to be enough? Should we look to Washington or in this case, Salem, where our capital is for the kind of security that most of us want? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's an appropriateness to looking to the government for um, some level of security. God puts the government in place. And so we don't want to completely discount the government. I think where we make our mistake is that we supplant the gift and the giver. Mm. And, uh, you know, when the government becomes something that supplants God, that we forget that God is the one who has given the government to us. And when the government can't provide, we're not out of options because God has limitless possibilities that he is able to use to provide for us. I think that's sort of the, the answer to the back half of your question. Um, when we look at the book of Job, I mean, what we see here is Job really very much sort of repenting and, and, and kind of saying, you know, listen, if I, were, if I were trusting in money, if I were trusting in gold, if this is where my confidence was, then there would certainly be iniquity. There would be sin here. But the reality is, it's not. It, his trust is not in the money. I mean, if you think about what Job went through, he lost everything, uh, almost more than everything, everything but his own life. And uh, he, he still stays faithful to God. He still continues to look to God and say, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I still find you worthy of worship. I'm still going to be faithful to you. I'm not going to uh, compromise my beliefs or my integrity here. I'm just going to wait until you reveal what all of the suffering has been about and trust you that even though I've lost everything, things are going to be okay. And, and I think that that's sort of the attitude that we have to start to cultivate. And we need to start to cultivate it in, in two ways. Number one, when we lose things, and I think we're, you know, you mentioned the pandemic, I think we have lost something mm -hmm. as a people in a nation. There's a very real sense of unsettledness that we're dealing with. And that's a loss. Uh, many people have lost their jobs or their homes or their, you know, their, their, their security, their, their weekly paycheck. And those are real losses. And we have to look at those things and say, okay, is God still worthy despite all of these things? And the answer to that needs to be yes for Christians. At the same time, the second part is we also need to look at this in terms of generosity. Is that um, we should not find our security and money to the extent that we are unwilling to give, that we're unwilling to help our brothers and sisters in Christ or just the world at large. Because at the end of the day, the money is not what gives us our security. It's always God. 
And he's provided with this wealth for a reason. And what we need to be doing is looking with eyes to see and listening with ears to hear. So we understand how to distribute that wealth in a wise manner that is going to glorify him. One of the things you write about is greed and greed has been Mm -hmm. elevated to virtually a virtue in our our culture. The scripture refers to it as a a form of idolatry. Can you talk a little bit about um, greed and selfishness uh, in in particular in view of um, economic hard times? What do we deprive ourselves of if we rely solely on what we can produce through our own efforts without um, recognizing the role that God plays in providing for our needs? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, I always go back to Deuteronomy, and I'm, I'm an Old Testament theology guy, so I always go back to Deuteronomy. But um, in Deuteronomy, one of the things that God warns the Israelites about is forgetting God when he has provided them with cisterns that they did not dig and houses that they did not build and vineyards that they did not plant. In other words, um, when we get wealth, we somehow begin to think that it is by the strength of our own hand that we have accumulated it. We forget that it's a gift from God, that it's something he's given us. And I think the biggest danger for us when we think about greed as idolatry, that there, that is an important and real um, equation that Paul makes there. Uh, because when we forget God, we begin to worship money. And what that has, the implications that that has are, are almost endless. Um, because as we begin to worship money, what we realize is that we have to work to get more of it. Money is not a kind master, in other words. <laughs> um, it sort of makes demands on us that God doesn't really make. Um, and, and I think within the context of, of you know, biblical theology, one of the things that I would say is money never gives us time to rest. Money mm. never really gives us time to worship God. It's an mm. endless cycle of production, and we become cogs in a machine without really even knowing it. But when we worship God, when that is the focal point of who we are, when we, when we trust and love and find our security in Him, when we remember Him as opposed to forgetting Him, He gives us rest. He gives us peace. And it's not that there's no work or effort in that. It's that the work and effort that we put in is, is sort of uh, empowered by God. It, it's, uh, he gives us a peace that surpasses our understanding. And so um, that, to me, is the real distinction between working for God and working for money. The two just aren't equal masters, because God can provide so much more beyond what money could ever provide for us. And so when we work for money, we're really working for a secondary master, and ultimately we're becoming slaves to it in a way that— um, diminishes who we are as human beings. Mm. So on the one hand, we have the option of contentment, and on the other hand, slavery. That's right. Seems like a pretty yeah. clear choice to me, but sometimes we struggle making the right one. Well, I am it's so del- Yeah, yeah. I'm so delighted with the devotional that we've been talking about. We focused on one area, but there are eight areas. Becoming useful to God, biblical reflections inspired by D.L. Moody. How can our listeners uh, download a copy? So they can just go. This is a free resource that we're offering. It's uh, moodycenter.org backslash useful to God. And all they do is go in, fill in their name uh, and email, and they can download a free copy of it at moodycenter.org 
backslash useful to God. I'll make sure we put that uh, information on our online resource, the Facebook page, and also the station page, kpdq.com. Thank you so much for your leadership um, at the, uh, the center and for taking the time to put the devotional together and to talk with us about it here today. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, Becoming Useful to God, Biblical Reflections, inspired by D.L. Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final chapter, the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Google-owned YouTube, they've been flexing their censorship muscles against conservative voices for a while, but the big tech company's tactics just got, well, even worse. Now, tacked onto the posts of pro-lifers, YouTube is directing users to pro-abortion information. You may have access to readers, but they're being diverted elsewhere with a message contrary to your own. Well, that means that life-affirming videos, such as those that tell the truth about the grisly details of abortion, share deeply held beliefs on the sanctity of human life and discuss alternatives to abortion, such as the life-saving pregnancy resource centers that are being slandered, will now have links slapped onto their videos that direct viewers to the pro-abortion talking points they're advocating against. Now, the reverse is not true. YouTube is following its predictable partisan pattern, using the cover of misinformation and context to dehumanize unborn human lives. YouTube's purported context, that's what they call it, accompanying the video, Uh, reads abortion health information with a definition from the National Library of Medicine. An abortion is a procedure to end a pregnancy. Well, it doesn't just end a pregnancy. It uses medicine or surgery to remove the embryo or fetus and placenta from the uterus. The procedure is done by a licensed healthcare professional. And though YouTube hides behind the cover of medical experts at the uh, National uh, Library of Medicine, Um, like it did when it censored COVID-19 dissenters. It's notable that NLM is just another hub of progressive federal government bureaucrats within the National Institutes of Health that plugs abortion and has reportedly published thousands of papers on racism and medicine. Well, YouTube's context, as they call it, the disclaimer also includes a link uh, to the NLM abortion informational page, which suggests uh, ways to abort a child. Medication abortion or procedural abortion. The former is the chemically induced and it goes on from there. This is what YouTube has decided to do in censoring those who are using its platform. On the other side of that coin, according to the Guttmacher Institute and a new report by the organization, formerly it was the research arm of Planned Parenthood. They've showed that at least 20 or rather 66 clinics in 15 states have stopped performing abortion abortions since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade on the 24th of June. In addition, among those 66 clinics, 26 have closed down. Well, since the high court's 6-3 ruling, many states across the country have severely restricted access to abortion. And that's precisely what the Supreme Court said. Not that abortion is unlawful, but that it, there is no federal constitutional right to it. That it is remanded back to the states and each state will decide for itself before Roe versus Wade. This is how it was done. Decide for itself whether or not abortion will be permitted. Well, many states across the country have severely restricted access to abortion. When clinics close down or stop offering abortion care, it represents a lost source of health care for the community. That's what Guttmacher says. Others of us who are 
pro-life, pro-women, and are willing to step up and actually support those we um, we want to um, discourage having abortions. Well, for the 15 states analyzed by Guttmacher, it provided uh, information on the status of clinics there. In Alabama, they had five clinics. Now they only have um, uh, zero clinics offering abortion, one closed entirely for open for other services. In Arizona, there were eight clinics. Zero of them now perform abortions. One is, has closed entirely. Seven are providing other services. In Arkansas, two clinics. One closed entirely. One offers other services. In Georgia, 14 clinics. 13 uh, clinics offering abortion care. One closed entirely. In Idaho, Three clinics, one closed entirely, two open for other services, zero abortion care. Well, I don't even want to put those two words together. Kentucky, two clinics, zero offering abortion, one closed entirely, one offering other services. Louisiana, they had three, three closed entirely, zero uh, services being provided. Mississippi, one clinic, zero uh, offerings of abortion. Missouri, Um, One clinic, zero abortions. Oklahoma, previously four clinics, two have closed entirely, two are open for other services, zero abortion clinics. South Dakota, one clinic, zero offering abortion care, one open for other services. Tennessee, there were seven, two clinics have closed, five are open for other services. In Texas, 23 clinics, zero are offering abortions, 12 clinics closed entirely, 11 are open for other services. In West Virginia, one clinic, zero abortions, other services being provided. Wisconsin, four clinics, zero abortions being provided, four open for other services. Well, in his um Concurring opinion in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe and Casey, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote, and I'm quoting, I join the opinion of the court because it correctly holds that there is no constitutional right to abortion. The court well explains why, under our substantive due process precedence, the purported right to abortion is not a form of liberty protected by the due process clause. Such a right is neither deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, nor implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. End quote. Justice Samuel Alito wrote, we hold that Roe versus Wade and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such rights is right. Rather, is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely. The due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, But any such right must be deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. There's an impact following that decision. That means life in those states. We are out of time. I do want to thank uh, James Blinn for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us tomorrow. We'll feature the Christian outlook for this week, among other news stories both the uh, serious and the lighter. So join us tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.